Welcome to our regular podcast, Harlem Stories. I'm Robert Lazo and Adam Feinberg. And today's episode, we're going to be talking about co-ops. Now, we've already started talking about condos, which are a small portion of the population of, of residences in Manhattan. But co-ops are a whole special breed. They're not available in many other parts of the country. And those that are, they're very small in quantity. So the reality is that it's something that makes Manhattan very, very different market uh, in terms of the housing population. Okay, so I'm going to ask just a basic question. What is a co-op? So a co-op is basically a, you know, a residence, but it's set up from a legal standpoint as you're purchasing shares in a corporation. You do not are, are not buying real property like the way you would in a condo. But you put a condo building and a co-op building that were built at the exact same time and, you know, they might have progressed differently over time. But, it, you know, one of them could have been formed legally as a condo and the other one could have been formed as a co-op. And, you know, that brings out, you know, a whole bunch of different ramifications and, and how these, you know, types of purchases can be very different is the purpose of today's conversation. And buying a co-op, uh, you're buying an apartment, but the apartment that you're that you're purchasing you're not actually purchasing the apartment you're getting a lease on the apartment that you're interested in and you're buying shares as part of that corporation so that is one big distinction between condos and co-ops um and 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 that's just the very beginning of the process and how these two differ now trying to get a mortgage in a condo versus a co-op uh condo is going to have all sorts of different variations in terms of um you know how it might qualify for a mortgage but in 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 a larger sense it's very much very similar to purchasing a condo in the rest of the nation. There are a little bit of process differences in, in condos in New York City versus buying anywhere else, but they're small in the grand scheme of things, such as you might have to do a purchaser board package. But in, in the grand scheme of things, uh, the board still has to approve a buyer. So, you know, for the most part, it's really about the building understanding its risk. Whereas in a co-op, uh, not only are you, you know, uh, basically as a buyer, once you have a, you know, an accepted offer and a contract signed, but after that point, then you're, you are filling out an, a purchaser board package. Uh, oftentimes it's much more, uh, much longer, much more intricate than you would find in a condo board. But the, you know, the real big difference is, uh, is the, not only the level of detail that you're providing to the board, uh, but on top of it, the board has the ability to say no to a particular buyer. And they don't have to indicate why they're saying no. So that's a really big difference between condos and co-ops. So in both cases, you have to submit an application if it's either a co-op or a condo? In the vast majority of cases, correct. But in this particular case with a co-op, there has to be a decision made by the board? Correct. So there's a co-op board. They're unpaid volunteers. And they're basically the ones to review your personal and financial circumstances. And I think uh, what's in that co-op board package, I think, is probably the conversation for uh, another episode because that's a whole lengthy thing. But uh, you are providing, you know, all of your financials, taxes, uh, references, things like that uh, in, a, in a board package. And ultimately, 
once you've actually gone through that and the board basically either has few or no questions, uh, then then from there, the co-op board uh, will then ask to interview you in most cases. And in a handful of cases, they might even ask to see your present home and, you know, and walk through it and make sure that you're going to basically be a good neighbor. In most cases, you know, once you've actually passed the financial qualifications, um, the the co-op boards are really just making sure that you're not going to be a headache, uh, uh, you know, uh, to the board and cause them all sorts of problems. So that's usually what they're what they're looking for in terms of that board interview. You know, so mostly the the you know passing that board qualification is really uh, from the financial standpoint is the most important. Um, now, buying in a co-op, since we are talking about those finance, you know, components over here, uh, some of the most important aspects over here is, number one, they're looking at your debt-to-income ratio. So, uh, you know, in, in terms of that, they're looking at any debts that you might have that are recurring. It does not include things like, you know, credit card bills that you're going to wind up paying off in 30 or 60 days. Um, so short-term debts, or let's say even if you had like a maturing loan or something like that, that matures in the next you know, a couple months, uh, that would not be included. But anything that's like revolving debt that you know that you're gonna not going to take pick the pay the balance off, uh, that will be included. So the typical co-op board, and it's going to vary from building to building, but in Manhattan, you can say, you know, a safe estimate for the vast majority of buildings is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood about 28% debt-to-income ratio. And that's going to include any mortgage that you might have. It'll include uh, those installment loans that you might have and long-term credit card debt as well. Um, so that debt-to-income ratio will take into all sorts of things. In terms of your income, well, that's something that we go over as agents, and that's where we can kind of help add value into the equation as to what's included and what might not be included. Um, so that, that's, that's it, it, part number one in how a co-op board is looking at your finances, the debt-to-income ratio. Number two, they're going to be looking at your post-closing liquidity. So what is post-closing liquidity? Well, if you're taking out a mortgage, they're going to look at that mortgage payment plus the maintenance. And we didn't really discuss too much on the maintenance at this point, but that is your uh, basically the cost to maintain the building plus your prop- the property taxes are included in that number. And, uh, you know, and and, uh, if there is a building mortgage that will be included, uh, your share of that will be included in that number as well. So, again, going back just a moment, uh, that that um, post-closing liquidity, what they're looking for is uh, is going to include your mortgage payment, if any, that maintenance payment. Um, and then they're going to basically take those two numbers and say, you know what, we want two years worth of that in reserve after you figure out what your closing costs are going to be and remove that from the, your cash equation and your down payment as well. So whatever you have in cash is what they're going to want to see two years worth. So let's say your mortgage is $1,000 a month and your maintenance is also $1,000 a month. That's $2,000 a month times 24 months. 
uh, you know, for two years. So that's $48,000 that the, the, the uh, co-op board would want to send your bank account after you account for the down payment and the, the, um, uh, the closing costs. So uh, if you had $200,000 and then you took out, you know, a large chunk of that, you know, for the down payment uh, and, and, you know, uh, closing costs in a co-op tend to be pretty low. Um, but if whatever remains of that money, you're going to have to make sure that still $48,000 still is still in your bank account at a minimum. For post-closing liquidity, a board would be typically looking for 24 months times your uh, mortgage and maintenance. So yeah, it's going to be 24 months of your mortgage and your maintenance. Now a lot of a lot of buyers in New York are are all cash buyers, so that makes that number a little easier to achieve in those situations. But yes, it would be your your mortgage plus your monthly maintenance times 24 months. Um, now, not every building is going to be the same. You know, some might be much more liberal and they might say, we only want to see a year and a half worth of, uh, of mortgage and maintenance for that post-closing liquidity. Others might want to see more than that two years. But, you know, the vast majority of buildings are, are setting the tone at, uh, at, at two years. So, and, and also um, co-ops uh, buildings don't document what the requirements are. This is just something that, that, that we as agents understand in terms of what the, the basic sort of requirements would be, but um, there's no, none of this is kind of written down anywhere in specific. Yeah, that's correct. And um, although I'd have to say in places like Westchester, the laws had recently changed and uh, they are now required to, you know, to state, you know, any reason why they, they might uh, you know, reject a buyer and they will state what the requirements are. But in New York City, uh, no such law exists on the books. So, you know, at least for now, the laws might change. But for now, yeah, they, they could potentially reject. Uh, they don't tell us what these numbers are. Um, they might kind of give us some hints and indications, uh, but but they don't usually tell us outright what those numbers are. Usually, the the uh, the statement that you'll get uh, is that uh, every every buyer is a different situation, and we review the totality of the buyer situation. So far, we've talked about two key factors with uh, co-ops. Um, first is the debt-to-income ratio, and then the second is the post-closing liquidity. Now, there is one other requirement that's typical in co-ops as well, and that's the minimum down payment. And in most co-ops, although there's plenty that are going to be much higher, uh, there's a few that are going to be lower, but in most co-ops, they are going to require 20% down. Um, so, you know, you'll hear throughout the country, a lot of bankers will say, you know, 20% down as a requirement is a myth. Um, well, in Manhattan, the market does operate very differently. And usually, you know, for most situations, that is not at all a myth. And in fact, it's required for the vast majority of co-ops. Now, uh, the, I, I, there are probably only a handful of buildings that will permit like 15% or less uh, down and that it's usually going to be more the northern Manhattan market, um, but even still, that you know the twenty percent standard is is pretty re pretty standard. 
Uh, the exceptions, if you start looking at, you know, certain neighborhoods, uh, like, you know, Fifth Avenue, Park Avenue on the Upper East Side, um, you know, there's some, there are some specific neighborhoods where it's pretty common to see, you know, 30%, 35%, 50% down payments, or some do not want a mortgage at all. Be, and, you know, quite honestly, in those situations, you'll usually see the price much, much cheaper. But at the same time, um, like we said, you could be rejected for any reason. And, you know, I've heard of these buildings. Some of them will say, you know what, if the buyer doesn't own a yacht, they don't belong in this building. So, you know, it, it is like a private club that you're purchasing in. Uh, and, and, you know, the requirements you know, are going to be, you know, different for each building. Is there a way that um, a buyer could find out which uh, co-op buildings would appeal to them um, more than others? I think that's where the agents provide value, be primarily because we're we're looking at these buildings all day, every day, often seven days a week. Uh, the typical agent does work, you know, six or seven days a week. So, you know, the reality is um, that's where we really come into the equation. So in terms of, you know, other things that make uh, that make co-ops different. Um, so we've already talked about, like, you know, how you're purchasing shares in a corporation. Most are going to have a board package. Uh, they'll have a board interview. Um, they can reject buyers, you know, uh, for any reason or uh, hopefully they should have any re uh, uh, real reason. The, we talked about their down payments and financial requirements. Uh, we talked a little bit about the monthlies. Now, things that we haven't talked about is, you know, who might be an ideal co-op buyer? Um, and, you know, I can tell you without, you know, obviously getting into things like fair housing laws and discriminatory, there are certain, you know, categories that aren't exactly, you know, the most friendly to the vast majority of co-ops. And that's going to be like, for instance, uh, your investor population. Um, so the vast majority of co-ops are looking for primary residents. Um, you know, not to say that that most co-ops won't allow subletting, but some won't. Uh, and those that do, typically you're going to find them is they'll only permit uh, subletting the apartment two or three years uh, in, in a row. And after that, they're looking for you to reside in the apartment again. Um, so, you know, there, there are requirements in terms of a rebuilding and what they have. And this kind of goes back to your question of like, you know, like, how do you find what buildings are right for you? That's going to be among those topics. And in a, in a related uh, topic, but separate category is the Pierre de buyer. Uh, the board policies are gonna are gonna vary from building to building, and uh, you know typically you're gonna see most co-ops really want to see you know primary residents. They they don't really want to see an empty building most of the time, especially you know for like over the winter and people go down south. Um, you know, most buildings are primarily focusing on primary residents. Um, so the the some of the other categories over here are like also. Um, those that are non-citizens of the U.S., um, you know, that is not a protected class uh, in terms of fair housing. So uh, 
a lot of times, uh, also, if there's any kind of default, there, there's the concern of, you know, will they easily be able to collect if they're not citizens, if they go back to their country? Uh, you know, collection laws are, you know, very different. So that is also a determinant in terms of that. Now, we talked about like these categories of like who might qualify, who might not qualify, um, you know, so just know like these are also some of the, the big differences. I think the final category that we really need to talk about and what distinguishes uh, differences in co-ops and uh, from condos is, you know, the topic of the pricing. And, you know, since we've talked about like all these different quantifiers and qualifiers on co-ops that you don't have in condos. What do you think that might do to pricing? Uh, well, you know, I, I think the obvious answer is, well, it, it's going to mean that these these obstacles that you're putting in, your, in their way, you know, are going to be definitely going to send the price down versus the same or identical apartment uh, that if it were in a condo building. So the fact that not everyone can qualify, you know, there's going to be other restrictions in some co-op buildings. Some co-op buildings will not permit dogs or certain breeds of dogs. Now, that's possible in condos, too, but that's less likely in condos. Co-ops are known for being very selective. They want people that are very much like themselves, you know, in terms of their behaviors, in terms of their living uh, style. And, um, you know, so these are these are some really important points that really distinguish condos versus co-ops and, you know, and what's different about the co-op world. Uh, and, you know, really, you know, in terms of inventory and demand, uh, the vast majority of the inventory in Manhattan is going to be co-ops. Uh, what would you estimate? You know, the percentage around 70 percent. Does that sound right yeah, to you? That's about right. Yeah. Yeah. So around 70 percent of the current inventory is co-ops. So number one, they they are much more plentiful in number uh, than than condos. Uh, so you know that also sends up the you know supply versus demand equation in condos. Uh, you know, versus co-ops, uh, but also in, in, in terms of, you know, just the availability of, you know, of housing options. If, you know, if roughly two thirds of the inventory is going to be co-ops, obviously that's going to really kind of help define some of what your choices might be. So in other words, what you're saying is that because uh, the um, requirements are stricter than a condo and because there are in general more uh, co-ops that are available, uh, the prices of co-ops tend to be lower compared to condos. Yeah, not only are they tend to be lower, they tend to be significantly lower. And you can find a difference, a pricing differential between those two very often somewhere in the range. And it's going to depend on building by building. But uh, we tend to see them range between 15 to 30 percent discount versus a condo. So obviously, if um, you're planning on, on living uh, in your apartment rather than uh, uh, running it out, you're definitely going to be better off looking at uh, a co-op rather than a condo. In most cases, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the because the condo uh, style tends to encourage a lot more investors, a lot more pied-a-terre buyers. Yeah. In, in the vast majority of, uh, of co-ops, you are going to be, you know, feel a little bit more comfortable in a co-op for very much that reason. Now, that's not to say that there aren't co-ops that, you know, that permit free subletting or free investors, but they are a very small percentage of the total co-op 
uh, you know, population. And, you know, very often we have investors that wind up approaching us, you know, because co-ops tend to be cheaper, they're automatically attracted to co-ops. And there are some investor-friendly co-ops out there, not a whole lot of them. And while they do tend to be cheaper than condos at the same token, they're not necessarily a huge, uh, huge amount cheaper because obviously there's less obstacles to purchasing those units. Okay, very good. We'll be right back. back and we are talking about co-ops. So I, I think to kind of wrap up and, you know, just really make the distinction between condos and co-ops uh, at this point, even though we're the this episode was focusing on co-ops, I think we are now wrapping with the most basic aspects. So let's just do a quick rundown of condos versus co-ops now that I've broken it down into detail. You know, I think it makes more sense over here. So uh, if we're to do a quick summary over here, in a condo, you're purchasing real property. In a co-op, you're buying shares in a corporation. In a condo, you know, many of them will have a board package and application. They can't reject. In a co-op, they almost all will have a board package and application, and they can reject. Um, You know, uh, there's also a board interview in a co-op where there is not in a condo. Um, in terms of down payments and, and the financial component, in condos, if you can get a bank to finance with just 10% down, uh, that's okay with the condo for the vast majority of those buildings. Whereas in a co-op, you're going to have a 20, minimum 20% down payment in most buildings, though there's plenty of buildings that require much more and very few that do not. Um, in terms of you know any other additional financial requirements, as long in a condo, as long as a bank will finance you with that ten percent, nothing else really matters uh, in terms of the financials. Um, in terms of uh, co-op, though, you're going to have to have that twenty-eight percent maximum debt-to-income ratio um, and two years worth of post-closing liquidity. So that gives you uh, quite a bit on you know difference on that. In a condo, in terms of those monthly charges, want to make sure we're clear on this. There are two different monthly charges in a condo. There is the monthly common charges, which is really maintaining the building and potentially a reserve. And then there's your taxes. Um, So they're two separate categories, but if you add them up, that's your total monthlies. And in a co-op, you have one number typically, and that's going to be the monthly maintenance. And that monthly maintenance will include your your uh, your your te- property taxes. Now, to be clear, in New York City, whether it's a condo or a co-op, the vast majority of buildings also include your heat and hot water as standard, primarily because we're we're vertical living and we're all sharing, you know, the same kind of plumbing. So it's it's much harder to start subdividing. So, you know, typically one boiler for the entire building or two, depending on, you know, or however the building is set up. But, you know, one boiler might be able to handle many, many different apartments. So in terms of like some of the other structures and who else can purchase over here in a condo, you know, uh, you can typically freely sublet the apartment. You can typically use it as a pied-a-terre. 
Um, and, and as a result of some of these policies over here, there's going to be, um, and I'm sorry, I forgot one category, also non-U.S. citizens are also, you know, a, you know, good, you know, a, a good uh, category of uh, buyers for condos. Um, and as a result, we, we often expect in condos the level of owner occupancy tends to be lower, primarily because these buildings do freely permit this kind of openness in terms of, you know, who can reside in the building. As opposed to co-ops where there's, there's limitations in terms of the vast majority of the term limits, two to two, three years out of every five is, is the most common ruling over here. Uh, whether you can use the apartment as a pierre terre, uh, you know, as another component, um, and also whether you're a U.S. citizen or not is, a, is the final consideration in terms of, you know, who is going to typically wind up living in there. Um, finally, the last difference that I wanted to kind of summarize between condos and co-ops is going to be the pricing. And in terms of condos, um, you know, they tend to be more expensive because they're fewer in number and there's a lot more flexibility. And in terms of co-ops, there's a lot less flexibility and they are greatly, in, uh, uh, much, much significant in quantity and in, in availability. Um, so there could be a difference as much as uh, 15 to 30 percent in terms of pricing between uh, the typical condo versus co-op. And I think that's a, a, a pretty good summary of what we should expect when we're considering condos versus co-ops. Now, I know this is Harlem Stories, and you know we'll, we'll, we'll be discussing plenty of different episodes where we get into much more specifics, but we felt it was important to kind of lay some groundwork uh, you know, before getting into a lot of the neighborhood-specific types of situations. Great. Well, thank you very much, Adam, and thank you for joining us, and we will be back next time with Harlem Stories.